Hey y'all, welcome to Shelf Life, a podcast where I, Nicole Barbosa, chat with some of the coolest people in publishing about the wonderful world of books. In each episode, my guest and I will chat all about their book, Real or Imaginary, and then place it on a shelf alongside other authors and books that inspire them. Great literature frozen in time. It's definitely one for all the bibliophiles. In today's episode, I chat with Robin Sloan, best-selling author of Mr. Penumbra's 24-Hour Bookstore and Sourdough. Originally from Michigan, Robin eventually made his way across the country to San Francisco, where he worked at the intersection of media and technology for many years. I loved both of Robin's books as they feature fascinating characters who delve into the complexities of the physical and digital worlds, something I can definitely relate to. Robin and I chat about the inspiration behind his two books, whether a 24-hour bookstore is actually a good idea, as well as the exciting new projects that Robin is working on in 2019. I really hope you enjoy this one. So I am excited to be talking with best-selling author of Mr. Penumbra's 24-Hour Bookstore and Sourdough, Robin Sloan. How are you? I'm great, and I'm happy to be here with you. We were kind of talking a little bit just now about your first book, Mr. Penumbra's 24-Hour Bookstore. Such a mouthful of a title, but also just really fun to say as well. I'm always curious when I get a chance to talk to authors that I admire. What was the thinking process behind that title? I mean, obviously, when we get into the book, we soon learn who Mr. Penumbra is, and we also learn why it's a 24-hour bookstore. But what was kind of going through your head when you came up with that title? You know, the the answer there is actually a pretty non-characteristic one, because it's often the case, or, or maybe even usually the case, as I think you've probably heard, that titles go through a lot of evolution and transformation. And that was certainly the case for my second novel, which did not have its title from the beginning, or rather had like five different titles, many of which were horrible, along the way. Mr. Penumbra's 24-Hour Bookstore had that title from before it was a book, actually. It began its life as a short story that I wrote in kind of a long, sort of intense weekend of writing and published almost immediately online. I published it on my blog and put kind of a free ebook version up on Amazon. And that first version, which was very different from the novel, but had, you know, sort of the same seed of, of the story, its title was Mr. Penumbra's 24-Hour Bookstore. So somehow I just, I got it the first time. Nice. And every time I even, every time I even considered like, well, is this the right title? It was so obvious. The answer was yes. Yes, that is definitely the right <laughs> And title. that will never happen to you again in your lifetime. That I don't think, honestly, won't come that easy. <laughs> I, I, and of course, because it was my first novel, I took it for granted that the title had come so naturally and just seemed so fixed. It was almost like discovering something in the world rather than, you know, making something up or inventing something. I love that. Uh, and I totally took that for granted. But no, that was a special experience. I love it. And for your first book, so it should be. You know, obviously, I don't have any books out, but I'm sure you will attest that your first book, it's there's just something really special about it, isn't it? Even if you write 10 more books. I've heard other people say this, and I think it's true. When you write your first book, you're not sure there's ever going to be more. So you sort of open up your head and you pour out everything you want to say. Like this is your one shot. So I think it is the case that a first book is kind of more print of the author than the ones that follow. Yeah, that makes total sense. And then you're saying that sourdough didn't come as easy then it was truly the whole range from like overly cryptic titles that referred to things in the story and made perfect sense to me and sounded amazing but as you know a potential reader in a bookstore you'd look at it and be like i don't know what that's about okay (laughs) moving on Uh, and some others too there was for a minute just a just a hot minute um i thought that the perfect title was going to be lois comma her robot comma and the sourdough Ooh. And like sort of, again, it, it, that has some of the same mouthful yeah. feeling as Mr. Penumbra's 24-hour bookstore. 
And I liked that. I liked that sort of, it, was, it felt kind of like overloading the cover. Mm. But ultimately, my colleagues talked me out of it. But that is truer to how your first title was. Because it's like, yeah, Robin Sloan, he wrote, Mr. Penumbra's 24-hour books are... And sourdough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like... I know it is. It is really the two ends of the of the title <laughs> the spectrum. spectrum. <laughs> How many people have asked you whether you've made a lot of dough out of sourdough? <laughs> the truth is, I never got very good at it. Say that my best sourdough loaf was like maybe a C plus. <laughs> Always a little bit too dense. I just did not master the care and feeding of that little organism. Uh. So um, I wish I could say that I like became a master artisan sourdough baker and it was through <laughs> my understanding of the dough and the culture that I realized there was a great story to tell but no I think like a lot of people I tried and then kind of decided it was better to just buy really good sourdough bread from someone who <laughs> knows what they're doing I have some friends who are great home like truly truly great home bakers and it's so maddening and makes me realize that there really are just different kinds of brains and different Talent. sets of skills like they are obviously just so sort of and, and it's not that they're naturally in tune with it. I think they, they have patience and diligence that I honestly don't have. Um, do and I. ways of kind of getting in sync with like the dough and sort of sensing what's yeah. happening. And I think that was always actually my problem. I wanted it to be much more systematic and like, okay, time for the next step than it really was or ever could be. Yeah, but, you know, without giving too much away about your second book, did your sourdough ever sing to you? Yeah, so for, for listeners who don't know. Everybody's listening are like, what's yeah, going yeah, on? Yeah, no, there's a... <laughs> There's essentially a supporting character in in Sourdough, there my is. second novel, that is a, a sourdough starter that starts to exhibit these strange behaviors and characteristics. And truly, that whole sort of thread of the story does come from life. And that comes from my experience with keeping that little starter. Before I started baking sourdough bread, I did not understand that's what sourdough bread was, that there's a little colony of microorganisms that are sort of just bubbling merrily in the corner of your kitchen and to like feed them and have to figure out what to do with them when you went out of town like that just was a whole really weird actually and kind of alien experience and so yeah you can be sure that I filed that away to use in fiction so we'll get on to what your books are about in a minute but I have to say I don't know if anybody else reading sourdough got this Kubrick the cactus. When I was thinking about the cactus, I don't know why, and then as the sourdough is singing to him, I was thinking of Little Shop of Horrors. And, oh, that's funny. And that's I don't great. know if anybody else has ever said that to you. This is what I love about reading, because some people can find different connections. Obviously, a cactus did not sing in Little Shop of Horrors, but with the singing and the, I don't know, it just it yeah. conjured that I, up. You're absolutely right. There's there's such a powerful point, kind of just, that, and you said it so casually, but that like... And this is probably true for other forms of media, too, but especially reading any story, it really does. It kind of unfolds within this network of references that are very personal and very kind of idiosyncratic from person to person. So no, no one has ever said (laughs) that sourdough made them think of Little Shop of Horrors, although that does make perfect sense. But I love that. I mean, truly, I think that's one of the really, really wonderful, powerful things about books. And it is that they can kind of connect to everyone's personal constellation of reading in different ways. For the very few that haven't read your books, would you like to give just a kind of brief synopsis of what your two books are about? Well, sure. Mr. Penumbra's 24-hour bookstore is about a young man who gets a job working the night shift in a 24-hour bookstore. And perhaps predictably, that ends up being extremely weird. Customers are eccentric and kind of seem to be up to something mysterious. So of course that becomes a a puzzle that he has to kind of unlock and it leads back to the history of books and to the Google campus and all sorts of cool places. And Sourdough is another Bay Area story, but it kind of takes a different 
attack because it doesn't stay in San Francisco, but kind of roams all over. And it's about a young woman who actually bails out of the tech world. She decides it just is not working for her. And by chance is gifted a sourdough starter. The origins of the starter are kind of mysterious. And it too, I guess all my books are about people basically being given things or being put into situations that are stranger than they seem which probably is a good way to start a book. But uh, yeah, she gets her sourdough starter and it turns out very quickly, it's apparent that it's very strange and it <laughs> essentially becomes her key uh, or her invitation into the very, in fact, really very weird world of Bay Area. <laughs> the people. underground world. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's one of those things where in both books, they're sort of like, you end up in these strange worlds, whether it's the world of tech in Silicon Valley, the world of Bay Area food, and you barely have to fictionalize because in <laughs> fact, they are so strange and so stocked with curious characters. I was just wondering, how did you come up with this concept for a secret society bookstore? Was that something that you just always had in your head? I know you said that you wrote this blog post, but just kind of going back before that even started, yeah. where did that come from? And and also, I have to know, is Mr. Penumbra based on anyone you know? As in all the characters that I write, of course, there are threads of people that I know in the real world or or even characters or sort of um, archetypes that I've encountered and liked in fiction. Sort of sadly, there is no real Ajax Penumbra in the world. All these things, they always develop organically. Maybe there's other writers that have a master plan and they kind of outline everything ahead of time and they just know exactly how it all fits together. I'm not one of those writers. I, In some ways, I kind of lay the tracks down in front of me as I go for better and for worse. But the seed always starts somewhere, right? You have to have an origin point, a sort of a spark that gets you going that starts the flame and then you can sort of fan the flame and, and turn it into something bigger. And in the case of Mr. Penumbra's 24-hour bookstore, the spark was a tweet, not my own tweet. It was someone else's, a friend of mine. And the tweet said, just misread a sign for a 24-hour book drop, like at a library, as 24-hour book shop. <laughs> and now my disappointment is beyond words. <laughs> So yeah, and that made me laugh as well, because it's just sort of delightful. And more than that, it made me think just in that moment, I was wa I actually, I remember exactly where I was. I was walking down Clement Street in San Francisco, kind of dorkily scrolling through my phone. I saw it and I laughed and I looked up and I kind of thought, man, a 24-hour bookshop, that's a terrible idea. Why would a bookstore be open 24 hours? And you know, you know how that happens. You kind of just start daydreaming and thinking. Yeah. And I jotted down a few notes, and it's not like it, it became a story instantly that moment, but I definitely kept thinking about it. And then when I did sit down, I was like, I'm going to write something now. I'm going to kind of put some thoughts together. There it was on top of the pile, ready to go. That's amazing. Although I don't share your dislike of a 24-hour bookstore. I actually truly love that idea of actually having I mean, a I like the idea. I just don't think it would work as a business. I, I think I just love the idea of, because you know how people say, well, there's countless articles about how to sleep better. And they say, okay, well, if you're just not falling asleep, get up, go read a book, you know, or something yeah. like that. So that would be great. You know, three in the morning, you're just not feeling sleep. You go down to the bookstore and you just sit and read. I, I don't think that you're considering the full picture, which of course <laughs> is that there would be other people at the 24-hour bookstore. And I feel like the other, I mean, again, for better and for worse, I think the other customers at the 24-hour bookstore at three in the morning would be very interesting. If you did have a 24-hour bookstore, what would the rules be? Oh, right, right, right. Well, yeah, you, so you're alluding to the fact that, that in Mr. Penumbra's 24-hour bookstore, there is this sort of code and these sort of, yeah, exactly, these strange rules yep. and procedures that all the customers seem to follow as it unfolds. 
the truth is that um, if it was really my bookstore in the world, I would not have any weird rules like that because it would. I feel like it would make it seem so unfriendly and kind of foreboding to new customers. So it'd actually be the opposite. It would be the most chill, open, inviting bookstore. So yeah, mine, mine would be really bright lights, wide open, actually not very much like Mr. Penumbra's 24-hour bookstore at all. It'd have a lot of comic books. And of course, it would have a little cafe. You know, you'd want to be able to post up there and maybe spend some time. Looking at both of your books, actually, they feature characters that have digital skills. And what I think so interesting about Lois and about Clay is that they do have these digital skills, they do have these programming skills, but they both end up in roles where they are in the physical world. And I was just wondering, why did you show both of these sides of being online, being kind of like from a digital background, but also being in a very physical atmosphere as well? Yeah, it's a good question. And the answer is very straightforward. It's in a way a kind of counter-programming, maybe, on my part, because I feel like so often the way these dichotomies or dualities are framed, especially, you know, in media or frankly, even on like panels at book festivals and things like that is as either or print versus digital or like the bookstore versus the online place. And I think that's nonsense. I think that anyone who really cares about words and pictures and stories and books and like life hungrily uses both for the different things that they're good at. You talk about Lois and Clay both pulling back from this world of pure digitization to engage with more tactile things. And that's right. And of course, both characters really benefit from that. Yeah. And I don't think this is really a spoiler to say that, however, as both stories kind of progress, they end up using their digital skills in really important ways. Yeah. Um, you know, Lois, of course, like, again, no spoilers, but Lois has to learn a lot about sourdough starter and baking and all these kind of organic tactile processes but she also ends up baking using a robot that she has programmed the stuff that she was doing at the beginning of the book and i think that's important to me if these were stories of people leaving the awful digital world behind (laughs) to embrace the warm comfortable world of organic offline things which is obviously better like, I actually don't think those would be true stories. No. And they certainly wouldn't be my kind of story. So what I'm always looking for is the synthesis and trying, I guess, to make the argument that you can have it all. Why would you ever choose? It's all about literally combining experiences and tools and affordances from all these different domains in a way that makes you happy and, you know, lets you do the things and, and think the thoughts that you want to think. Yeah, that's so true. And I think today... So many people are encouraged to have transferable skills, and that's definitely true in these books, as you alluded to and as you said. They start out having these programming skills and also means that you're quite analytical and quite like methodical with your mind. And so when it comes to doing something like baking or something like stacking books, it can be quite an, a different change, but in a good way, as you said. And I think one of the interesting things as well about both of these books is, so I come from a a digital background and I work in digital every day. I'm on computers. So for me, the idea of having a Kindle is just like sacrilege to me. So I have to physically hold this book in my hand to feel what I want to feel from this book. And you know, to to each their own. I, I totally get it. And I have friends who feel both ways. They have a Kindle and then they have books. But for me, that is the one part of reading and books and literature that is one thing. It can't yeah. be both. I would suggest to you as, as one way to think about it. I agree. I'm, I'm you know, given my druthers, I'm always a, a print reader. Sometimes when you're traveling or, you know, for whatever reason, it, it's, it's helpful to have an e-reader. But same thing. I much prefer to read on paper. I would offer that 
selection is not between sort of technology and not technology, but actually just between two different forms of technology. Because, of course, the book is, like, in the grand sweep of human history, extremely high-tech. The ultimate and, technology. Uh, yeah, it's really, a, at this point, a very well-developed and very impressive technology. And it sometimes sounds a little, like, goofy or, or glib when I, when I say it this way. But truly, like, I think we can look at the printed book's list of features the way we would the newest Android phone. It's portable it's durable you can pass it along to other people it never runs out of battery power you know there's there's an interesting sort of mnemonic thing that happens as you move through the book and the pages the thickness of the pages you're holding in either hand changes i actually think that does kind of imprint the whole thing into your brain in a way that the kindle with its little you have reached location 374 <laughs> doesn't and you know on and on and on you could list more of these features and I think that's really important. Often, or especially for people who love books, the instinct is to frame them as some this sort of additional, organic, eternal thing. And that is not the case. Like both the books that you have held up so far in, in, in the little video feed that we have going are paperbacks. And paperbacks are brand new. Like the paperback is, a, is an invention of the 20th century. So anyways, it's all high tech. That I think is. it's important to give, to give books credit for their high-tech nature. There are so many great lines in your books. I want to read one of my favorites uh, referring to Kat. Uh, so Kat is a, a character in Mr. Penumbra's 24-hour bookstore. Setting the scene for everybody, this is when they are scoping out the secret society, the unbroken spine in uh, New York. And I just, it's such a simple line, but I love this so much. Kat bought a New York Times, but couldn't figure out how to operate it. So now she's fiddling with her phone. I must have read that five times laughing so hard while reading it. And I hope everybody is laughing as well because it is so, so spot on yeah. of our society. But it is so true. It's like, what is this paper that I'm holding? Yeah. I don't understand it. They're, and quite, oh, and they're <laughs> quite overwhelming. Yeah, like especially the big, like the, the, so the tabloid size ones are a little more manageable, <laughs> but the full broadsheet size. I know. It's really like just to manage it in space. I always end up feeling like I've got this thing. It's flopping and I'm <laughs> trying to like figure out how to fold it back. Also, I, I used to work with a lot of people who were old time sort of newspaper writers and editors. And at that time, I, I guess I had read newspapers a bit as a kid, but mostly just for the comic section. Yeah, I was not a huge newspaper reader. And they clued me into something. Truly, you talk about technology and affordances and and being able to like operate something or, or decode it. Yeah. I'd be curious to know if you, if you do this. There is a thing in print newspapers. It is like a well-established and well-understood convention. Like if you look at the paper and you had to, and like the front page, and mm -hmm. you had to answer the question, which of these stories is the most important? Like what is the most important story here as determined by the judgment of, of these newspaper editors? I think most people, including me, would say, well, it's the one with like the biggest headline. Obviously, it's the bigger the headline, the more important it is. That is actually not the case. In print newspaper culture, it's the story in the upper right corner. Whatever, even if the headline is just like a normal size, that is the spot that is kind of, and they're transmitting to you, this is the one, this is the important story. I remember some newspaper person told me that years ago, and I just was, there's so much I don't know about this medium. <laughs> but keeping on the, the same topic, there's another great line I love, again, just happens to come from this book, which is, what Mr. Penumbra says to Clay as he walks in. And this has got to be one of the coolest opening lines ever, which is, what do you seek in these shelves? I just want a t-shirt that says that. Yeah, I think and I do too, come to think of it, yeah. <laughs> I think we're just gonna make this happen. Um, but I just right. want people to like run up to me and be like, what do you mean? What do you mean, what do I seek? 
as I said, is a definite contender for the best opening line for a fictional character. So I'm going to turn the question around to you, and I want to know what do you seek in these shelves? And that's really relating to knowledge or inspiration. I would just love to know, how would you answer that? If I said to you, what do you seek in these shelves? My answer in a bookstore is always the same, actually. My favorite kind of book to find, and, and usually what I go searching for, is the kind of book that I could only find in a bookstore. I mean, of course, if I'm looking for something in particular, I'm delighted to find it in like Green Apple Books in San Francisco or City Lights. But the truth is I could get that in any bookstore or or even online. Um, the things that you can't find anywhere else are the books that are out of print, the books that are really regional, you know, either self-published or made by very small presses, and or, and it, this is usually connected to, to one of those two characteristics I just mentioned, a book that you never even knew existed and didn't know you were looking for. And I, of course, have found many of those over the years. And to me, like that is the magic that some weird little book was languishing probably on a shelf in a store on a street in a town for like years until I showed up and was the one for me. And and truly, I have found I've just had such delightful encounters Interesting stories, interesting voices, weird facts, you name it, from books I found like that. I guess you could call them books that you could never search for online. Books that you would never search for online. So that's what I seek in these shelves. And that is such a beautiful way to look at it because, as you said, we can go into a bookstore and I am always recommending to my friends, even if you don't read as much as I do, just walk into a bookstore and be in that environment because it's such a special environment. You can walk in and, like you said, go for exactly what you're looking for. Maybe you had a friend recommend it. Maybe you've read a review. And then there's just something that's gleaming at you and maybe even smirking at you or weaking at you. And you just grab it and you're like, wow, this sounds really great. And that is how I found your first book. Hey, and good. So, so I wasn't looking for it. And the second book I found when I was in Paris last year, it was the last one. And I was like, it, I it. it was waiting That's for great. me. It was absolutely waiting for me. So moving on to Sourdough, it's about Lois. And she leaves Michigan for California to go work for General Dexterity, which I did think was very funny because General Motors, General Dexterity, I'm sure that there was yeah. some, some crossover there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so she gets recruited to go to San Francisco. And you yourself made a similar move from Michigan to California. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit around that. There's kind of two parts to it. One is, this is going to sound sort of simple or like, really? But it's important to me. There's so many opportunities in fiction, or not just opportunities, demands to insert some kind of detail. You know, you're going to talk about what kind of car someone's driving or how big a room is or a phone number, an address, a number of dollars. You know, it goes on and on and on and on and on. And of course, you can just pull something out of a hat. You can just insert something random. But that always seems to me like a real shame and a missed opportunity. If it could be random, it could also not be random. And like, why not make every little detail in your fiction mean something? And it doesn't have to mean that it's all metaphorically resonant and a deep code waiting to be unlocked. It has a hook into kind of reality um, and a kind of specificity. Truly, it was for a reason as simple as that, that I decided that the place that Lois was going to come from was a place that I knew and was important to me and that I wanted, you know, be to kind of give those places a spot on the shelf in libraries and bookstores and everything else. On top of that, though, I will say, and so, and, you know, you could pick probably any random detail on any page in one of my books and ask me, like, why the number 33? I'd be like, well, (laughs) funny story about 33 or whatever, or a name or, or whatever it is. I will say that on top of that, though, 
that move, literal, and that, that drive, which Lois makes from Michigan to California was one of the really important events in my life. And really one of the reasons that I set my fiction in the Bay Area is that for me, that's where stories come from. That's where like all the big important stories of my life, um, at least my adult life, have come from. And it's just a place that, I mean, if you have spent any time in the Bay Area, or if any of your listeners have spent time in the Bay Area, they will understand that it is like stocked with novel-worthy characters. So it's natural that that's kind of how my stories. I love the chapter where, I I love lots of chapters in Sourdough, but I love the chapter where Lois makes a loaf of sourdough for the first time. And I don't know why, but I just found something so lovely about this. Because one who hasn't struggled to make something in their life and it's just gone horribly wrong. And I love just the detail where you're just kind of like rooting for her. And then she looks up and there's just dough flung everywhere. And it's just like dough on the ceiling. Yeah, exactly. It's like all over the counter. It's just a massive, massive mess. Um, I'm laughing. I'm laughing just thinking about that chapter because it is, you know, in fiction, there's there's sort of a, a range of, of sort of levels of invention from like, well, yeah, the inspiration was something real, but then I totally transformed it all the way to like, this is basically memoir. Yeah. And I will reveal to you that that chapter is basically memoir. That's what um, I was going to ask. That is totally me making sourdough for the first time. <laughs> and in particular, I don't know if you remember this thread, but it's not this that it's going so badly for her. It's that the pictures in the bread book yes. continue to be so perfect. And so she's turning the page, of course, getting like gloppy dough on the pages. They're all sticking together. Yeah. And there's these beautiful, you know, these wonderful, perfect pictures of this baker holding his loaf, his kind of, you know, proto loaf. And it's all glossy and smooth and his hands are clean. And like as she gets further and further along, it's like, you've got to be kidding me. And I, oh. I just love it. Yeah. But also I found myself getting angry at that book. Anyone out there wants to actually get that book or the real world kind of analog to that book. It's the Tartine Bread Book, which is a great book and like very important in the sort of resurgence of sourdough baking, actually. It was hugely popular. It was what taught me how to make sourdough. So obviously, I kind of owe it a debt of gratitude. I probably would not have written this novel. I do have to say that the book is completely infuriating (laughs) because it is so uncompromising. It's quite mean. It like really wants you to bake a certain way. And if you don't, you're like wasting your time. A mere mortal cannot bake that way. Do you know what? I just want a cookbook where the first instruction is to drink a large glass of wine and yeah, then the, right. the photos of what you're going to make will be a true depiction of what it will look like as you keep drinking. Right, yeah. So at the end of the recipe, it says, right, if you have followed my instructions to the letter, uh, drunk a whole entire bottle of wine, this is what your sourdough should look like. If you're ever looking for a cookbook project, I think that definitely has an audience out there in the world. I think Definitely. And that brings us on, I think, quite nicely to the chapter in the book where Lois is presenting her bread to the panel of judges. So essentially kind of backtracking a little bit, Lois goes to General Dexterity and gives her sourdough to Chef Kate, who basically says to her, oh, well, actually, there is farmer's markets around the area where you could possibly sell your bread. And I think it could do really well. You could go for this market, you could go for this market, but you don't want this market. And like, she has the whole insider knowledge. So she goes to this panel. The panel is interesting on its own, just how dark it is. It's, it doesn't feel like a friendly panel. It feels like a very judgmental panel, like they put the judge in judges. And there's a question where they say to her, okay, what's your background? What do you do? And she says, oh, I'm in programming. And someone says, do you prefer programming or making bread? And she's just like, do I have to choose? 
And I'm just wondering, does she have to choose? Do we have to choose between something we love to do versus something we do every day? I mean, where's the line between where something is an interest and a hobby into something that actually means more to us? I think that she doesn't have to choose. And I hope that the book is kind of in a way about how she ends up not quite having to choose. But she does, but I will say she does have to choose between something else. And she does. I don't want to even say too much about it because I, I do think it ends up being a bit of a spoiler. She even says this. Lois kind of explains that what she's feeling about this kind of work. And the tension she feels actually is not the tension between programming and baking. It's the tension between a kind of work that's very common in Silicon Valley. And, and actually, I mean, anyone who kind of does digital work, I think, often does this which is you solve a problem once and it's solved forever. If I'm at Google, someone says, oh yeah, every time I search for dogs, the dogs that, that appear are not sufficiently cute. I'm like, okay. And so I tinker with some code, I up the cuteness index, and then suddenly the search results for dogs are extremely cute. They're extremely cute for everyone around the world. And until someone goes in again to change that code, they will continue to be cute. I move on to the next thing. Like that's that kind of work. Yeah. There's a different kind of work, which, of course, is like a baker's work where you get, get up in the morning, you bake a bunch of bread. It's amazing. You know, you've, you've learned how to do this. You're a master. You put a lot of time into this into this craft. You have to do the work again that morning. You know, use your muscles and use your mind. You put it out for sale. People buy it. They consume it, essentially destroying your work. And then the next day, the whole cycle begins again. There's no equivalent to that sort of Google move of fixed it. And now it's fixed forever. In a sense, it's almost the opposite. The better you get, the more reason there is to redo it and do it again and again and again. I, I will tell you, this might or may not be obvious to you or, or to people listening, for tech people in Silicon Valley, that second model, that, that treadmill of work is really quite appalling. Like They're like, ugh, that doesn't scale. You just have to do it again and again and again and again. And the magic and, and truly what's made so many people so wealthy in Silicon Valley, the power, that trick of that first kind of work. So Lois is caught between these two worlds. She starts the book in that first world and she definitely recognizes its power. Yeah. And then she gets acquainted with the second world. But that sense of like, okay, am I going to wake up and do this every day forever is like she doesn't know. That's actually quite challenging. It's something yeah. she has to kind of work her way through. So to me, I think that's the choice she has to make. In, in the end of the book, she does make a choice. But Am I correct in thinking that there was an underlying message in Sourdough that we're constantly having to test things and improve ourselves and that actually it's okay not to get it the first time around? And Because that's kind of what I took from it in the sense that especially when Lois starts at general dexterity, she almost finds herself, and again, this is entirely my interpretation, but she was very overwhelmed. And it was nothing like how it was in Michigan. And she had this cute little team and everybody like loved each other and chatted with each other and stuff. And then you get to this massive place, but it does get to the point where you're just like, repetition, automation is the ultimate goal. But do we really want to live like that? Do we want to live where everything is automated for us? There, And that's what I think is really nice about the physical worlds of your book, is that there is that element of automation that is there, but it also almost makes people run the other way. I will say that I am super, super dedicated to the idea that once a book, a, a text, is out of the writer's brain and onto the page, everyone's interpretation is valid 
and in, in fact, as valid as the writers. So I could tell you what my opinion of chapter four of Mr. Penumbra's 24-hour bookstar is, but you'd be like, uh, interesting, too bad you're wrong. Truly, I'm, I'm always fascinated here exactly what you just said, the people's kind of interpretations and the way that this stuff worked in their brains. Sometimes it's merely interesting. Sometimes for me, it actually unlocks something. Oh my gosh, that's actually right. I just learned something about the book that I wrote and I'll carry that forward forever. To the specific question, I will just say in my opinion, again, as valid as anyone else's, is that I really hope that nothing that I write, it seems like I'm settling the question and saying, well, having considered it, X. Because this is just true of my own life and my own kind of thoughts. What's interesting is the tension, the really powerful tension between all these different axes. And you just sort of laid out a bunch of them, automation and repetition or kind of the, the concrete and the physical or the digital and the immaterial. Again, we've talked about this a few times in a few different ways, but I don't think you have to choose. I don't think you ought to choose. And in any case, the interesting thing is to just feel the tension. So I guess what I think I'm trying to do is set up kind of a story in a world in which you can really see that tension clearly. The moral of the story is not, <laughs> and in the end, bread was better, but rather <laughs> I'm kind of just pointing to something and I'm saying, look, or like, feel that. And I hope people do. Yeah, I definitely felt that. And as you said, and what's interesting about both of them is that for someone like me who loves to read, and I imagine most of listeners do as well, or they wouldn't be listening to this podcast, there's something about books that just has this power over us. And it's unlike anything else, I think, personally. I guess in a similar way, books and baking are subjective. What one person thinks is really good, other people's think maybe not their taste. But with baking, I feel like you can keep having a go, you can keep trying, and then eventually you have this end product and you're like, oh my gosh, I made that. Whereas with books, you didn't make that. You are taking someone's product that they made and interpreting it and loving it, or in some instances, not loving it. And I'm just wondering, as an author, when you bake your books, <laughs> so to speak, when you're making them, when you're creating them, what do you feel when that end product is done? What, what is going through your head? That's a good question. And it really depends on sort of the stage that you're at. I think you probably have heard from a lot of writers that there's that moment and it's really unavoidable kind of in the middle of the process, but it's after you've drafted something, you have like a first draft or maybe a, maybe a second draft or, or so, and you see very clearly how much it diverges from your vision. Because of course the vision wasn't even specific, it was just a, a great perfect book with a cool vibe. That was the case truly writing Sourdough. Mr. Penumbra's 24 Bookstore was different because I just had fewer expectations overall. With Sourdough, I had a, actually in the beginning a pretty clear vision of what I wanted to do and the first few versions of the book just were not, and in fact, the final version of the book is not that. But by the time I got to the final version of the book, I had made my peace with the fact that it was going to be different. And in the beginning, that sense of divergence, maybe it is like the feeling of trying some elaborate recipe and it doesn't come out anything like it looks in the cookbook. And you're just like, what am I going to do? Of course, then the difference is generally, I mean, sometimes maybe you just start over and say, no, I'm going to try to make that souffle or that sourdough bread. I'm going to yeah. really try to do it. So maybe sometimes you do that. I think more often, at least for me, you make do with what you've got. You're like, okay, <laughs> well, people are coming over at 7 p.m. I need to feed them something. So what can I do with this? I know I'll chop it up into little pieces and fry it in a frying pan <laughs> or whatever it is. So that's interesting, right? It's like a kind of a, on one hand, there's always, I mean, just truly, there's always a sort of deflation and a reckoning with what's really there, yeah. what you really have to work with. But then comes the ingenuity. 
And then comes the sort of like, oh, I have some skills. You know, I have some tricks up my sleeve and I can make this into something good. And that's fun. And that's exactly what you did. You made two something goods. So I can hand on heart say that I absolutely loved both of these books and everyone should read them if you haven't already. And if you have read them, read them again. It's really simple. I agree. Definitely. They, yeah. they stand up to a good reread. I completely <laughs> agree. The last question that I have for you and the premise for this podcast is I'd like for you to imagine that your books are on a shelf and you have the opportunity to select other books or authors that you would want on your shelf. And I would love to hear who your inspirations are, who would be on your shelf. Tell me, how long is my shelf? A hundred feet? That's what I thought. Ursula K. Le Guin, for sure, because I loved her books, in particular her Wizard of Earth Sea books, this sort of fantasy series. I loved them when I was a kid, but they have truly opened up and sort of deepened for me as I've reread them and I got older. And I just think in terms of prose, like if you if I had to pick somebody whose sentences I just wish I could write or who I wish I could write like on a just word to word kind of prose level, it would be Ursula K. Le Guin. So she's truly one of the greats. So her Earthsea books would be on the shelf. I would also put the English writer M. John Harrison, who I think is pretty underrated. He's a writer of science fiction and and some other kinds of weird fiction. And uh, in particular, he has a, a novel, Light, and then two sort of sequels that follow it that I just think truly like works of great literature that that deserve to have a readership for a really, really, really long time. I think if I had to nominate one of those books, several I would nominate, but M. John Harrison's novel, Light, written in the early 2000s, would be one. It's impressive as hell. Just the language, the ideas, the science fiction of it, it's awesome. So I would put those on the same shelf. They are very aspirational associations. But then also, uh, I would add to the shelf, by definition, I I can't give you the title of the book, but since this is a sort of dream sequence anyway, I think (laughs) I can get away with it. It would be a book, maybe, you know, sort of a book with a similar vibe to Mr. Penumbra's 24-Hour Bookstore, some sort of puzzle fiction, something with a younger protagonist, but a book that didn't get a big enough audience, right? One of those books that for whatever reason, maybe the cover was kind of wonky, maybe it was just a weird time in publishing, who knows why, it was launched into the world and it didn't get the readership that it should have, including me. Like I should have read it, but somehow I didn't hear about it. So I want that book on the shelf too so that I can discover it and other people who enjoyed Mr. Penumbra's 24-hour bookstore can discover it too. I love it. Maybe it was self-published. Maybe that's probably Probably was. You never heard of it. I love it. And, and more and more books are becoming self-published, which is which is fantastic. So that's really great. Question on my mind, and I'm sure on other people's as well. Is there anything coming up that we should know about? Yeah, definitely. Boy, I've got a bunch of projects underway. Um, a new so novel, exciting. some other shorter stuff. I should say that this year, 2019, I'm doing a project that's, that's very new to me. It's linked from my website, which is robinsloan.com. The name of this project is Year of the Meteor. And I'm actually publishing something short, a work of short fiction, every month this year. They're very limited run print editions. You can get them in the mail anywhere in the world. The first one came out in January. There's another one slated for February. And, of course, on and on and on. And, uh, yeah, for me, it's kind of like a form of cross-training almost. I, I began by writing short fiction before I ever published any novels. I had kind of a stockpile of stuff growing that I, and I didn't really know what to do with it. And I, and I also had the sense that I wanted to, to write more sort of real short and maybe kind of weird stuff. Uh, so that's what I'm doing. So if anybody wants to follow along, they are invited to do so. That is 
is very exciting. And I will put the links in the description when this goes live cool. so people can, can click on it for sure. And then for anyone who wants to get in touch with you to tell you how fabulous you are and how much they loved your books, what's the best way to do that? If you buy a copy of Mr. Penumbra's 24 <laughs> write a message on the inside, then leave it in a cafe somewhere for another person to find. It's very strange, but they all make it back to me eventually. So See, people who don't it. know you think you're joking. <laughs> they should actually. It, it, it's better if you buy three, then because then it's definitely going to make it to me. So that's that's how that's how you do. It. We're we're gonna see how there many people do that, and it's gonna be a viral sensation in this campaign. Yeah. Well, I now want to go off and write a message in my copy of my book, but you should. I, I also just don't want to lose it, so I don't want anybody else to have it. I think I'll keep it safe where I know exactly where it is. Robin, thank you so much for chatting with me today. It's been fantastic. Yeah. It's- it was- pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Shelf Life. I'd love for you to tell me what you thought of it, either on Twitter or Instagram, or by leaving a review on iTunes. Until next time, happy reading!